close your eyes for a moment. <coughs> Touching to feeling the body again in the sitting posture. See if you notice any after images or after sensations from your walking meditation that are feeling on the bottom of the feet. Sensation where you don't normally have so much sensation and mindfulness or freshness from the breeze or touch of grass perception of trees water, sky coolness of the stone floor whatever it may be and then feeling what it is now to be sitting in the seat aware and aware of being aware thing to be talking about awakening on a warm summer's evening, a Sunday warm summer's evening, but I'd like to talk about awakening and the path of awakening this evening, Uh, particularly about uh, the path of intentionality, the path fold of intentionality. Uh, Intentionality is one of the folds of the Noble Eightfold Path. Right up at the top, at the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path, it's right there next to view. And uh, so about the mind, and extremely important. So if you remember back to being a young kid, All of us were young kids at one time. Maybe we still have that young kid inside of us. (laughs) Uh, I still feel that strongly. I'm not quite 50 yet. (laughs) But I still feel quite clearly and strongly. So when we were young kids, we were being told what to do so much. Ah... that the subject of intention uh, might not have been, or acting with intentionality might not have been so much on our radar unless we did something that somebody else thought was wrong and they asked, they put us on the grill and they asked us, why did you do that? What were you thinking? (laughs) Right? If you did something fantastic, they would never put you up against the wall and say that kind of thing, right? In the Buddha's case, actually, it's a really great great question to ask, and people did ask the question. You did something fantastic, and people wanted to know, why did you do that? What were you thinking? <laughs> but normally, normally it doesn't it doesn't happen like that. You do something really, really great that people praise you for, and they normally don't have that, you know, really urgent feeling of wanting to know what was going on in your mind when you did that. Yes? <laughs> Only when you really, 
really gotten into hot water. And then often when you're a kid and you've gotten into hot water and you put on the spot like that, and you can only say, um, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't thinking anything bad, really. Or even if I did get angry, I was just trying to make things right, you know? <laughs> Which doesn't seem like such a bad thing after all, in a way, you know, just trying to make the scales balance out again, and what's wrong with that? And, but often not really clear. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. So the subject of intentionality, not always, um, not always really so much in the forefront of our minds when we're uh, when we're kids it does start to come up a bit as we get older and the hormones start to rage and then uh, we have this sense of agency we start having this sense of, of agency of being uh, potentially active agents in the world even possibly agents of change but then the hormones are so strong in us at that time, it's like they're raging and it just comes up so flooded with emotion that often the emotion is the, the predominant aspect, the, just the strong feeling of the emotion in our body, whether we're upset about something or whether we're longing for something or lusting for it or, you know, just so, so yearning for something, often it's being upset, being outraged, or or longing or yearning that comes up with the emotions and with the with the hormones so strongly. But kind of clear cognizance of intentionality is actually really difficult to come by when when the feelings are raging so strongly because in our bodies they are drugs. They are intoxicants. And everything gets colored by that drug, whether it's wanting something so bad that you feel like you could die for it, or whether it's getting so upset over something that you feel like you or someone else could die over it, or, or whatever it might be. It's like the, the, the emotion and the drug, the power of the drug of the emotions and how that colors our mind, whether it's it's like coloring everything black or blue, or whether it's coloring everything uh, rose <laughs> or peach, or like the the color of the the sunset or a crackling fire or something like this. It, it colors our mind and it changes those colors. It, it really changes our perception. Our perception is colored by the drugs of those those strong emotions and a kind of really clear clear, lucid intentionality that people have when they come to stop and they experience a kind of a stopping and awakening, where they also realize that there is intention and that they have choicefulness and what they think and what they say and they do does matter. This type of intentionality often comes to people when oh, they have a near-miss on the freeway. Or when someone they know passes away suddenly, or gets a fatal diagnosis, or there are many other kinds of things, actually, that can bring us to stopping and to that, to that type of clarity and, uh, and sense of intentionality. But th- these are just ones that are quite common. But really, sometimes it's just... You know, taking a hike and turning a corner and seeing the big view there and then just just stopping and becoming clear where we might begin to gain a sense of it. Or like with the standing or walking meditation that you're just doing. Sometimes people with walking meditation becoming fully mindful of the body really in the present. Becoming very much in the present. It's not not remembering the past, but not, again, it's like not being sucked into the river of the story of the past, or sucked into the, uh, and, and carried away by the, the river of the, the torrent of the story of the future. These things also can be like intoxicants. They can occupy our whole bodies and minds, and, you know, when we're, when we're in that space, what's going on right in front of us, 
even our young children doing something good or something bad, our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren. Uh, now, I'm a grand-auntie. Actually, now I've actually become a great-grand-auntie. How has this time come upon me now? <laughs> so soon, just a few years have passed. How is it <laughs> we've come to this? Yeah. Um, but often it's uh, later in our lives, or there's more possibility for us later, later in our lives to come to this sense of uh, really like full, full awareness and intentionality. It does happen with young people sometimes. It does happen with teenagers sometimes. It's just not the majority not happening for the majority. It's kind of a rare thing. The Buddha was awakened quite young at only how old? Do you know? 35, 36, so quite young. People said to him, you're such a youngster, only age 35, age 36, awakened like this. You think you're a sage, not the 70, 80, 90-year-olds. At that time in India, we think, it was common for people, or at least it became common later for people towards the end of their lives. Like after their, after they were, after they were parents and their kids were grown and their kids had kids and after that to then, uh, enter into a contemplative period of life, a contemplative stage of life. So that was actually patterned deeply into the Indic culture. That after you've done your duties as a as a family person and having kids and your kids having kids and that kind of thing, then that was your that was your chance. That was your your time uh, then to do the contemplative work of your life. So there's a whole culture and civilization that was was based in that. Yeah, that you now have some connection with and uh, some inheritance from some some heritage uh, in, uh, inheritance from. Yeah? Uh, but the Buddha is an only 35 or 36-year-old youngster, and having had this great awakening experience and becoming a teacher, then there were those who challenged him. Who were those who were older and said, what right do you have to talk to us? <laughs> you haven't experienced the same things that we've experienced. You don't have a gray hair on your head yet. <laughs> yeah? And uh, what about those sages who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s? The Buddha's stepmom entered into monastic life at age 80 and passed away final nirvana. Uh, Parinibbana at age 120. Yeah? So, they didn't mention whether she had a gray hair on her head or not, but, <laughs> you know, a real grand elder of, uh, of the Sankha and the founder of our Bhikkhuni Sankha, the founder of this tradition of um, uh, fully ordained women in Buddhism from the Buddha's lifetime. She was the, she was the lady who advocated uh, successfully with the Buddha for that, according to the stories. Yeah? So quite a great and strong lady, but uh, the Buddha had only a meager 35, 36 with his awakening experience. Um, then got a lot of challenge in how young he was. So he's an exception in that culture, in that regard, in being, in being so young and being interested in this path. But with uh, such experience and such sympathy, there were a lot of then, younger people who also came in and trained in this path, in, in the Eightfold Path, and uh, developed awakening at a younger age. In fact, one of the stories that I kind of uh, especially like is along this genre. It's about uh, a woman who was famous uh, as one of the disciples of the Buddha who did not become a monastic. Her name was Visakha. Visakha. V-I-S-A-K-H-A. Visakha. So the Buddha had a number of female disciples, uh, legitimate, certified, authorized by the primary teacher himself, and uh, recorded in the in the Pali Canon and in the Chinese and Tibetan uh, canons as well as being legitimate disciples of the Buddha. So both monastic women and uh, 
and also uh, lay women. And when I say lay in this case, it's really the wrong word because legitimate disciple of the Buddha who becomes a teacher and is awakened, shall we call her a lay woman? <laughs> in what way is she lay? <laughs> she's just a, I mean, she's not a monastic. And, um, but a definite disciple of the Buddha. So Visaka had her first awakening experience at age seven. Oh, age seven. Yeah? So this is, she became a stream enterer. She had a vision of the Dhamma, true insight into Nibbana at age seven. Became a Buddhist saint at, at that tender young age. So then for, for hundreds and even thousands of years in, in India, there was this kind of, it, it's kind of a Buddhist promotional phrase, like an ad phrase in a way that says that um, uh, other, other religions um, even, what is it, let me think about it, uh, what was realized by a young girl, even at age seven in Buddhism, has not been seen by those gray-haired sages even up to their hundreds in other faiths. Oh. It's an ad phrase, yeah? <laughs> so I was saying, even those great male, you know, highly revered male teachers with their long white beards and this kind of thing, with all their years of asceticism, here in the Buddha's Dhamma, a young girl, even at age seven, realized more than that. So, <laughs> this is one old old popular, old popular saying. It's like a commercial for Buddhism, I admit. <laughs> but there's a really good point there. And sometimes it's actually lost sight of by the contemporary tradition, by the contemporary traditions. Even here in the United States, I admit, sometimes that old ad phrase, it's lost, lost sight of, so I'd like to mention it this evening. Um, but coming back to intention, uh, intention as a path of awakening, or as one of the past uh, folds of awakening, one of the primary or main uh, path folds of awakening. Uh, I'd like to speak a little bit about Samma Sankhapo. So in the Theravada tradition, Samma Sankhapo is normally translated as right intention or wise intention. If you've ever been to Spirit Rock and you entered through the gate and you turn the prayer wheel that has the eight sides to it, then you might you might put your hand on wise intention and tenderness. In some uh, Buddhist traditions, this is called right thought. It is about what we create in our mind what we make in our mind. And certainly thought is one possibility, but it's not the only possibility. There are lots of other types of mental creations, mental fabrications. And some couple covers covers just about all of that. But in this case, uh, for Samma Sankhapa, it's talking about the type of volition, the type of motivation, the type of intention that underlies whatever whatever is being uh, created uh, in the mind and bringing consciousness, bringing full intentionality to that. So I was talking about uh, the, like the, the surging of the hormones or of the emotions and how we just get carried away with the things that rise in our emotions and in our minds and, and it can seem almost inexorable it can seem like we have no power or control over it like the feeling arises and you just get carried away by it and you try to stop it but no can do and this kind of thing yeah but all of you that's a very common experience but all of you have uh, already the tools to have a real really, really good handle on this, because developing mindfulness is actually one of the first steps, the mindfulness and clear comprehension, mindfulness and clear awareness is the first thing that you need to be able to realize, to recognize what's going on in your mind, and also to realize that you are creating your experience. Of course, it's not only us. I mean, the things in the world are happening. The other people in the room do exist. There are the things going on with the body. All, all of those things are there. But all of that is seen through our mind. Yeah? 
We have no way to know it other than that. That is our main, our main, the main way and really the only way that we experience whatever we're experiencing, that we see what we're seeing and how we see it. Now for every one of you here in this room, if we talk about the first fold and right view, for every one of you here, you're, you're hearing the same thing theoretically and seeing the same thing theoretically. And yet if you were asked afterwards, all of you would say something different about it. Yes? Experienced differently by each one of you. And even you yourself, you think solo being, this is, that has its, uh, what is it, it's, it's unity or something like this, but even you yourself might remember something different about it later. You might have mixed feelings. You might feel this and think this and think that. Uh, so not only between different people, but also within, uh, within ourselves, yeah? Uh, even without having multiple personality disorder. <laughs> it's a very common phenomenon. So, for intention, becoming aware of our intentionality. So Buddha taught three aspects of right intention. Have you all learned these? Have you studied them? Are they really clear and, and like strongly and clearly in your mind such that it would be a really boring subject? Great! <laughs> That's wonderful because this intentionality is really an important part of the path of awakening. And by awakening I mean being aware as a sentient being and being able to be fully conscious and fully intentional about what you do And when I say do, I don't mean just our physical actions. You're practicing mindfulness of the body, that's being aware of of the physical body, and mindful of feelings, being aware of feelings, also mindful of the mind, being being aware of the mind. But intentionality goes beyond simply passive awareness, simply seeing what is arising and what is passing. The ability to see it, as I mentioned earlier, the ability to see it is actually crucial in being able to get a handle on it, in a way, being able to engage with it effectively. If you can't see it, if you don't know, if you're like that child up against the wall, and what were you thinking? What did you mean by that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> or even something else, I don't remember. It's about something last week. <clears throat> and uh, you might not, might not even, might not have known, might not remember. What were you thinking when you said that? I don't know. It just came out of my mouth, right? Um, so, for intentionality, your mindful awareness of what is arising in the mind is greatly important. And then your knowledge that you don't necessarily have to. You can be mindful of it as it arises, mindful of it as it passes, yeah? That's one possibility, but as you know very well, and as I hear from people commonly these days, as mindfulness is becoming so popular, and people are learning this type of passive mindfulness, which is very, very important for coming to awareness. It's so excellent, it's very healthy, it's very important. But the part about being able to engage and make mindful and intentional choices and then act mindfully, uh, consciously, with intentionality is very important. And that's where we engage with the path. So in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path, the seeing part that's at the top is not the only thing. The seeing part then leads into an active and integrated path which gives guidance for how you will engage with your own body and mind and with external phenomena, the people that you're with, what's going on in the world, the choices that you have to make, the things that you're doing with all of that. And so the intentionality, this part about being conscious, being aware, knowing that we have choice, and then knowing how to generate positive intention that is underlying whatever is being proliferated or not in our mind, whatever we're saying, and whatever we're doing in terms of our physical actions. That's underneath 
all of that. That's at the base of all of that. It all comes from that. So unconscious volition is what leads us to do things that are not, uh, what is it, behavior that's not fully conscious and not fully intentional. There's the stuff going on that's below the bar of our ability to see and know what's going on. The sitting as you did this evening, if you're practicing consciously with it and really working with it, it's lowering the bar. It's making what you could not see before in terms of what's going on with your body, feelings and mind. It's bringing that into awareness. Yeah, so it's lowering the bar. If there had been a line of what was conscious, what was subconscious, what was unconscious, you're lowering that line, you're lowering the bar. So what was subconscious before, going on beneath beneath your active perception, now comes to consciousness. Probably all of you have experienced this. Some of you might have experienced it as a wonderful thing to know what's going on underneath there with these things that I'm feeling, and some of you might have experienced it as a horrific thing, like, oh, yikes, what was that? (laughs) I'm not sure I want to see this. But, you know, um, the type of uh, kind of awful stuff that that we can find there, normally that's been... Uh, going on at a low level with ignorance as its partner, with ignorance as its main contributor, means when it was covered over, like it was put in the basement or it was put in the attic or it was put in the, in the room where you close the door and then you don't look at it anymore and then it, it, in, in that room, then it could, it could do those kinds of things that you looked at and when you saw it, you said, oh, oh yikes. <laughs> Behind the closed door, it could do that, but as you open it, then you bring in your mindfulness, your awareness, and the ignorance part reduces with that. As much as you're mindful and aware, as much as you're conscious, as much as you're intentional, the ignorance part and the kind of dominance, the reign of ignorance, the reign of ignorance, which is can be somewhat easy to see out in our world, but can be harder to see in what's going on inside ourselves. But when we start to look, we can actually lower the bar a little more to what had previously been completely unconscious, and then we can start to see, ah, this is what's going on there. This is what's going on underneath, behind the closed door, down in the basement. And, and like this, but the, the awareness, the bringing the awareness, the presence to it, changes that, the ignorance part, the whole thing about the reign of ignorance that I just said, that shifts and changes. And then, then you have the chance to bring your conscious intentionality to it. So three parts, three aspects in the noble eightfold path to intention to what the Buddha called right intention or wise intention. Yeah? Non-harming. Non-harming. Abhihingsa. Ahimsa. If any of you have studied yoga, you might be familiar with ahimsa. Uh, Non-violence or non-harming. The intention of non-harm for oneself and for others, for the present, also for the future. Even with regards to the way that we approach and engage with the past, what we would call the past. Doesn't mean taking a time capsule and going back, but the things that still exist from the past. And this actually relates to another aspect, normally translated as benevolence, Beneficence or loving kindness. However, the Pali word, avayapaja, avayapaja, Pali word, similar to ahimsa, ahimsa non harming, avayapaja is also non something. When we say loving kindness, when we say benevolence, when we say beneficence, uh, the non aspect is not clear, but this word is actually, it's non-something. And that non-something is the vayapaja. And this is uh, retribution. Retribution. 
It's one way to translate it. It's a negative reactivity to something that's already been experienced, seeing it in a negative way. It's a type of harmfulness, you know, but it's getting specific about what about what it is. So meeting something in a way that has a backlash to it, seeing and meeting and holding it in a way that has a backlash, yeah? So whether something, whether something that's happened in the past, uh, far past, or whether something in the very recent past, something that even just happened, even something that we perceive that's happening now, it's like there's a, a negative judgment about it, and then there's a there's a there's a backlash to it, yeah. So loving kindness, benevolence, beneficence, it's true. This is the antithesis. How do you say it? Antithesis. Antithesis. The antithesis. There's another opposite word for you. The antithesis of that type of mind. So how you're seeing and taking things on, how you're how you're holding them. And this is especially then about how you take something on and how you hold it in yourself. Now, taking something on, you could imagine this is just about what other people have done or what's happened on the outside, but there's also how we take things on that are going on inside ourselves. Like we find ourselves thinking in a particular way, and we see ourselves thinking in a particular way, and we have that type of retributive reaction to ourselves. To our own thoughts, to our own feelings, to our own bodies. It's not kind, not loving, not benevolent, not beneficent. Yeah? So, not that. (laughs) Not that. Right intention. Right intention. So, harmlessness. This might seem like just another aspect of harmlessness in a way, yeah? But it's more than that. It has its positive aspect. It has its positive aspect to it. Because when you make an intention, when you make a resolution, when you're volitional about something, there's a kind of a determination there. And this is a determination of benevolence of loving-kindness, of goodwill, of compassion for our welfare, for our well-being, and others, yeah? Right intention. Third aspect, number three, nekama, sankapo. Nekama, also the first part of the word is negative. It means like, not, not that. To let go of that, to release that, to go against it. And the thing that's on the other end of it, in this case, is when we want something that's not good for us. We want it. Even if we're very short-sighted, we might think it is good for us. Supposing I were diabetic. Actually, I'm hypoglycemic. Close. Um, Maybe a kind of. So, you know, some kinds of foods seem like really I would be happy if I could eat that. If I ate it. I'm going to feel so good if I eat that. (laughs) And when the desire is there, as I was talking about earlier, when the desire is there, then that desire, it's an intoxicant, and that intoxicant, like taking alcohol, and you relax, and you think, ah, the things that I normally wouldn't do when I was not intoxicated seem fine to do now. (laughs) And desire can also be like that. If you let the desire really come forth and take over, and you just let it, like, jump into the river of the desire and go with it on your desire raft, And if you think it's harmless, 
Now, if you're feeling, if you've gotten intoxicated by the desire, this is the place where the ignorance will predominate. The desire will speak seductively and it will say, this is harmless. It's no problem for you to eat that black forest chocolate cake. (laughs) It has pure cane sugar in it, after all. (laughs) That's got to be good. (laughs) That can't be as bad as the one that has uh, high fructose corn syrup in it. Now, (laughs) it's going to be a lot better. It won't be a problem just to have it (laughs) this time. Plus, it will make me feel good, and that's a good thing, right? And then it will kind of block off your your knowledge of what the effect will be after that. And when you're feeling the effect of it afterwards, when you see the cause and the effect of it, and the intoxication has passed, and you're experiencing the suffering of it on the other side, as we are kind of now as a society, in a way, I feel like, there's a whole societal, even global consciousness about things that we've desired, that we thought were good, looking very short-run. It's like short-term fixes, short-term desires, short-term all kinds of things seems really good for the very, very short-term. But, you know, I was talking to somebody about our new monastery plan, and I said to them, I'm thinking about a place that will be good for a hundred years or a thousand years. We have the ancient Buddhist monasteries in India that are still such a treasure for humanity and our cultural heritage and still places of a spiritual sanctuary and, and solace and uh, contemplation for people that are more than 1,000, even 2,000 years old. But I said, I'm thinking of a 100-year plan for the monastery in Sonoma County. And they said, no, <laughs> that's not where we're at right now. <laughs> Hundred years, if we get through even the next decade, we're doing good right now. <laughs> I, uh, let me tell you, <laughs> humanity is in some deep duty at this point. <laughs> so, <clears throat> they mentioned to me like that. So I know maybe not everyone agrees about that, but there's a global, uh, growing global uh, concern or consciousness that all of these wonderful things that we've been developing, not really thinking about the hundred-year plan or the thousand-year plan, you know, kind of talking about sustainability. I have a friend named Kim who used to, um, for her uh, right livelihood fold of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, she was working as a sustainability uh, educator for corporations here in California and trying to get corporations to look at even the next seven years. And in costing things out, in costing things out environmentally and looking at the bigger picture, not only just locally, costing things out, looking at seven years and looking at the whole planet. Oh boy, somebody said. Yeah, even seven years of looking at the whole planet, not just like for me now for the next few years and just for those of us who are living in this area here and my particular group, my particular corporation, and very, very narrow, very short-term thinking wouldn't be categorized as right view. And in terms of right intention, um, nikama is often translated as renunciation. People say, oh, renunciation, right, that's fine for you monastics. But here I am, living in the world. And, um, you know, what did the Buddha say to me? What did the Buddha talk to me about? And that it's sincerely renunciation. It doesn't sound like it's part of the path of the householder or the, you know, this kind of thing. That sounds like it's for monastics. And then they ask me the question back, renunciation of what? Is it about the cutting off of your hair? No full path actually was meant for all of us. It's not about cutting off your hair, about wearing robes. No, no, not that. All for us, of course, in our monastic life, of course. This is an intentional community. It's one of the world's oldest intentional communities that has had a continuous existence um, since, since foundation. I don't know of one that's older, in fact. There might be. I'm not saying that isn't, but one of the world's oldest. And so, yes, we do try to do this with right intention and uh, practicing with these 
these three factors, but it's not really about whether you wear a particular shade of robes or not, or uh, whether you cut off your hair or not. But uh, looking at our desires from the very short-term perspective, <coughs> very narrow, very short-term perspective, would not, just to say very clearly, not categorized within right or wise intention in the Noble Eightfold Path, or wise motivation. So, in the text we find thinking about what will be for our own and others uh, long-term benefit and happiness. And the word long-term is really in there. It's there. So not just about short-term. And people say, wait, I thought Buddhism was all about being in the present. Isn't mindfulness all about being in the present? What do you mean, long-term benefit and happiness? Did the Buddha really, really say that? I thought he wanted us to forget about the past and forget about the future, right? And it's true that it's very important to be able to do that, not to be controlled by thoughts of the past, not to be sucked into continual thoughts of the future, to be able to become present and mindful. And then, when you think about planning something, You're able to bring that mindfulness to it when you remember something from the past, which is very important, actually, for learning and growing as a human being. If you just make all that a completely empty slate, how are you going to get wise? Wise people, part of wisdom is seeing cause and effect. It's part of right view. And right intention emerges and arises out of that. Yeah? So then seeing clearly cause and effect, then that mind of harmlessness, that mind of benevolence, that mind of non-retributiveness. Because if it's a mind of retributiveness, number one, who gets hurt? You know? Everybody, someone said, someone else is pointing to herself. That's true, you're both completely right. It's true. Uh, None of us is living in uh, such a a bubble as uh, some of those who are worrying about the environment or designing. Uh, And all of our lives and all of our choices, all of our behaviors do have impact on others. But first of all, if we have the mind of retributiveness, the first one that's negatively impacted is us ourselves. And that's very important to recognize. It's actually a part of the awakening process because we often think it's about the others. It's about the other things that happened. And we get drawn into that story and like a dog that's chewing on the bone until its teeth, its gums bleed and then feels like there's something tasty in that bone because its own gums are bleeding and cut. And this is kind of like when we think about something in a negative way and we chew on it and we chew on it and we feel like we're getting some satisfaction in it but we're actually harming ourselves. Yeah, because in any type of such negative, negative thinking or harsh thinking, retributive thinking like that, the first thing that it hurts is our own bodies, our own hearts, our own minds. So a place, a space of benevolence, a space of kindness, and a space of wisdom, because this is called wise and right intention after all. So these three aspects, and you can tell they're very much interrelated with each other. In a way, you could say they're even like different names for the same fundamental and basic thing. Uh, the, the benevolent heart that is harmless, that does see cause and effect and isn't going to be carried away by either negative emotion or by desires that would be for our long-term uh, harm, not for our long-term benefit and happiness, not only for ourselves but also for others. So people often think that there has to be a waiting on one side or the other self for others means it has to be weighted towards oneself uh, at the expense of the others, or it has to be weighted towards others at the expense of oneself. Yeah? But what is recommended by the Buddha here actually gets out of that dichotomy. So it's like stepping out of the 
the mind that swings either to one side or the other side, and just saying for our long-term benefit and happiness, uh, for myself and and for others, all inclusive. I am included in that too, as is everybody, everybody else. It could be called a type of holistic thinking, uh, or inclusive thinking, or inter interdependent thinking. Um, that's um, very, uh, very broad, even more encouraged, as you probably know from Manta practice, encouraged to make that thinking so broad that it's even unlimited. So our idea of all living beings and then going even one step beyond that, such that our mind, that, that beautiful, benevolent, harmless mind becomes unbounded, limitless. This is called a divine abiding in Buddhism. It's a divine abiding, not so much based in theistic thought, but just recognizing how beautiful and profound uh, such uh, thoughts and states of mind and states of being are, and that they are possible for humanity, for all living beings, and especially for human beings, as this is particularly a human dharma, a human dharma one that's especially for humans, not just for the heavens or like that, but a very human dhamma. So <clears throat> I'd like to, uh, to stop here with uh, uh, the reflection on right intention for now, having covered all of the three aspects, and uh, give a moment for any questions that might have arisen. Yeah. Can you just like short what are the three mm. um, so I'm giving them not I'm giving them in the order that I thought I'd like to talk about this evening so not in the order of the sutta just to let you know okay uh, this evening I talked about ahimsa harmlessness or nonviolence uh, which I'm calling uh, non-retributiveness and is normally translated as loving-kindness, benevolence, or beneficence, and nekama, which is normally translated as renunciation. And I like to say renunciation of the causes of suffering. It really means, though, not to get sucked into and carried away by desires for things that are not for our welfare, especially not for our long-term welfare. And I'm saying our here. So inclusive of self and inclusive of others, inclusive of our whole world and our planet. Yeah? So those are the three. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this might be a very big question, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about aggression and the ways in which I think you talked about lowering the bar and becoming more aware of things that might be below our awareness and, and that then those those things might not be able to cause harm in the same way. And yeah. I, I feel that way about aggression. I feel like aggression can be used as a positive force mm -hmm. or maybe it could be turned to something more like assertiveness. Mm -hmm. But it's something that I think about a lot, you know, how to okay. work with that. Working with aggression, can it be a positive force? So there's a way that um, what we call aggression or assertiveness could be something that's just like uh, uh, hormonal or part of our physical uh, capabilities, like to apply power or strength uh, to something or to be able to act strongly. So if I talk about just about applying power or strength to something or to be able to act strongly, definitely that's not necessarily negative. That can be done with uh, great intention, right intention. Sometimes the things call for strength. Sometimes they call for gentleness. In this path of practice that I've learned, what we would call the the samana life, the way of the monastic, the monastic way, we're actually asked to cultivate these two qualities together in harmony with one another, gentleness and strength. And this is a place where, again, we often think that gentleness means weakness or that strength means violence, yeah? Or strength means something hard or harsh. 
that this is getting out of this type of extremist thinking and going into the middle way uh, that is inclusive and uh, holds ideas that are often at disparity or often at odds in harmony together. So we're asked to cultivate the states of body, feelings, and mind where gentleness and strength are held together in harmony. How about the image of the Buddha that you see behind me here? Do you see that? If it's a good image of the Buddha, if the artist had a really right sense of it, you should be able to see gentleness and strength. The type of strength even that would give deep confidence, a sense of deep self-confidence that's rooted in wisdom, uh, deep, deep wisdom, clarity, assurity of what is true, what is real, knowing what's important to be done. These things all are roots of strength. And the Buddha acted decisively and definitively on many occasions. Yeah, Not always just watching things rise and fall. In fact, he was enormously proactive. Set out on foot and walked for for many, many years. Um, And uh, even when People were going to war together, you know, went out and uh, and sat there between where the armies were to converge. And you could say, you know, that's that's passive, right? He's going and sitting. <laughs> but it's actually a really, it takes a lot of guts to do that kind of thing. Who's going to go sit between the between the armies when they when they've come out like this? This is an act of strength. But those intentions, those beautiful intentions that we were talking about of harmlessness, of non-retributiveness, and uh, not just thinking about short-term desires, but thinking about our long-term welfare. Short-term desire will tell you, if you just get rid of those bleep, 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 uh, things or people, and you're going to be happy and everything's going to be okay. But it doesn't just end with that. It doesn't just stop there. The things are never ended like that, yeah? And it's wisdom, it's wisdom to know that, and it's a kindness to know that. And it's coming free from the thorny, thorny cycle or the chains of retribution. Opening them up and becoming free, yeah? So, I hope that this speaks to your, uh, to your question. So, um, not sure exactly what aggression means, but uh, if it has a, a negative connotation, then I would say that, that negativity is always negative. Um, and if it's just about uh, our, our strength and our power and our ability to act in ways that are important on a timely basis, very important in this path, in this active path of practice, that's the Noble Eightfold Path, developing uh, such... Uh, such strength, such clarity, even such decisiveness, such ability, uh, working with that together with the gentleness, the kindness, the non-retributiveness. Very important. That's what the uh, right or wise intentionality is all about, is giving, cultivating in ourselves the basis for exactly that in everything in our lives. So we've come to the end of our time now. And uh, I want to thank you very much for uh, on this uh, now cooling, beautiful summer's evening uh, for exploring the path of awakening, and especially some of the primary folks and uh, that of conscious uh, living, fully intentional uh, life, uh, awakening uh, in the path of intention uh, with you this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.